Hi, everybody. This is Mike Sugarman, producer of Reimagining the Internet. I'm really excited about our programming for June. All this month, we'll be sharing recordings from the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure's first-ever conference, Reimagine the Internet. Our good friends at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University helped us host this virtual conference from May 10th through May 14th this year, 2021. It was mostly made up of lunchtime conversations between pairs of people whose work hints at what the internet could become over the next decade. During June, we'll be sharing two episodes at a time so you can listen to these talks back-to-back, just like the people attending the conference did. First up are the opening remarks by this podcast's very own Ethan Zuckerman, which will give you a great taste of what's to come as we release these recordings. Thank you, as always, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed these talks as much as we did. Welcome to Reimagining the Internet from the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. We're talking to researchers, techies, activists, academics, and journalists about what's wrong with the internet and how to fix it. I'm your host, Ethan Zuckerman. Thank you for everybody who's come out for this. This should be a really interesting week to have a conversation about what could be radically different uh, about the internet and how we actually might take steps to get there. And so I wanted to start by sort of sharing what I'm thinking about when I talk about this idea of reimagining the internet and a little bit about who we've invited here this week and who you might be excited about hearing from. But let me start by saying that um, this last year has not been an easy one for anyone And even though it's a year that's been incredibly mediated by the internet, we're all getting very used to these lived experiences of Zoom meetings and catching up with friends uh, in virtual space, it's also been a year where we've really seen a strain on what the internet can and can't do as a social space. Um, We've seen an enormous amount of vaccine disinformation and misinformation spread online We've seen uh, the Capitol riots literally organized over social media, um, supported by movements like QAnon, coming out of online spaces into the real world in this deeply physical sense. We've ultimately seen the deplatforming of President Donald Trump, which even if you agree with the decision, is a reminder of what incredible power we've given to these platforms over speech. And this has all led to a real conversation about, is the internet good or bad for society? Is it in fact polarizing us, putting us into echo chambers, making it harder for us to interact with each other in a single civic space? And as someone you know, who studies this, my answer in many ways is, is I don't know. Uh, in fact, it's incredibly hard to know. And in fact, one of the reasons it's incredibly hard to know whether the internet is bad for us, is that it's incredibly hard to get data. One of the papers that I worked on uh, last year and this year with my friend, Dr. Elizabeth Hansen Shapiro, called New Approaches to Platform Data Research, talked with scholars all across the internet about what we would need to have in terms of information for us to be able to really answer these questions about what the internet is doing to society. And for the most part, we don't have that data. We're not likely to get it anytime soon. So let me ask a slightly different question, which is why would we expect today's internet to be good for society? The vast majority 
of the internet that we are dealing with day to day, the search engines, the social media platforms, the transactional platforms operates on a very specific logic. The internet tends to work on a fixed set of assumptions. It's almost exclusively built by large corporations, often publicly traded. Most of them have been funded by venture capital investment. It tends to be supported by two particular models. One is surveillance advertising, where uh, tools collect as much demographic and behavioral information on you as possible to target ads to you. The second is transactional. Uh, two-sided markets, uh, basically sellers and buyers trying to meet each other, often in fact enhanced by that same sort of surveillance. These spaces all exist at vast scale. This is an age of platforms that link half a billion, a billion, three billion people. And this is not just due to network effects. It's not just due to the fact that once a place becomes popular, everyone wants to be there. It's also because expansion and scale is what investors and markets are demanding. So the first thing that I want to say is that this isn't necessarily the way that this has to be. Um, at the end of this week, we're going to hear from my dear friend, Chan Rashenda Nicolucci. He is my collaborator on this short book, which we'll also be sharing with all of you called An Illustrated Field Guide to Social Media. This is a project we've been working on all year. And the idea behind it is that we worry that when we talk about the internet, we really end up talking about five companies. We talk about Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, maybe occasionally Twitter. And the truth is when we look at those sites that have these huge audiences, we end up missing lots of other models that are out there. There's an enormous amount that we could learn from some very big, successful networks like Reddit. There's even more that we could learn from some projects that may be below the radar. So even now, the internet doesn't actually have to work a single way. We just tend to assume that it works a single way. Of course, my friend Catherine Marr will help us understand with Wikimedia that, in fact, you can work very successfully along different models. But the model does not necessarily have to be one in which everything is free, you pay with your attention, uh, and the goal is to have a scale of a billion users. We also have existence proofs from history. Uh, and this is something that technologists are just terrible at doing. We're always looking over the next horizon. We wanna know what's new, we wanna know what's next. But honestly, there's an enormous amount to learn from looking backwards. Those of us who grew up with the internet in the 1980s and the 1990s, we know that there was this remarkably generatory and participatory internet that grew up around Usenet, which was a distributed, decentralized, non-commercial network. Right now, scholars are starting to re-examine Minitel, which was this surprisingly inventive space usually dismissed as what would happen if you let France Telecom invent the internet, but actually turned out to be surprisingly creative and vital and may have actually worked aspects of the revenue model out better than models that we're seeing today. So the big assumption that I wanna challenge is I wanna make the case that it's just not too late to fix things, but that the key to that is that we have to stop 
fixing what exists right now and start imagining that something else is possible. There are waves of interest in regulating the internet more closely, in reconsidering legislation like Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. There's increasing pressure on platforms to get more involved with policing content, creating better mechanisms for moderation and governance. And these are worthy and important efforts. And you're going to hear a little bit about it, but not a lot about it. That's basically not what we're talking about here. The ground rules for our conversation are really that it's not about fixing Facebook. It's not about fixing YouTube. It's not about fixing Google. It's about imagining and building alternatives to what exists now. And our theory of change behind this is that not only might we win by building something really great that ends up displacing existing systems, we could also win just by influencing and helping shift the systems that already exist. And so our model for this is a figure from 1961, Newt Minow. Minow was a political activist, a good friend of John F. Kennedy, who ended up becoming the head of the Federal Communications Commission in 1961. And so this is a lefty democratic political activist who comes in to oversee television and radio at a moment of great scandal. Um, there's a huge scandal over quiz shows being rigged. People are starting to ask this question, is television really doing what we want it to do for us in society? And Minow gives his first speech to the National Association of Broadcasters and says, look, television at its best is perhaps the most emotionally compelling medium that we've ever had. But at its worst, it is nothing but a vast wasteland. And he's saying this to broadcasters, trying to shame them for making trash TV, for making television that's purely about entertainment, that doesn't engage with civic issues, that isn't working on education. And the broadcasters are terrified. They are really worried that Minow's response to this is going to be to take the 22-minute sitcom off the air and to force television to be something radically different. Um, those of you as old as I am who grew up on reruns of Gilligan's Island, you may remember that the ship that sank was called the SS Minnow. That is not an accident. That is an explicit Newt Minow reference. That are the broadcasters shouting out to Newt Minow and essentially giving a, a middle finger to his aspiration for television um, to be a force for social change. But here's the thing. Minow didn't try to take Gilligan's Island off the air. Instead, what he did was start building infrastructure for a new type of public media. This was public media, very different than it was in Britain. It was designed to be complementary to existing commercial media. It was designed to fill the holes where market forces hadn't served people's needs. Programming around civics, programming for children, particularly young children. He recognized that you couldn't just create a pile of money for this. You actually had to build infrastructure. And so Minnow got very involved with satellite networks so that as public broadcasting came online, public broadcasters would be able to transmit 
content over Intel sat and have it spread across the nation. He forced television companies to support the UHF broadcast spectrum. So suddenly there was a whole new set of television stations which could be used for public media. And after he left the FCC, he started working with funding groups that did things like invest in children's television workshop, which ended up creating things like Sesame Street. So when we look at things like Sesame Street, you actually have to look at how much work it takes to make something like this happen. Children's Television Workshop actually works over the course of three years with child psychologists and puppeteers and scriptwriters and educators to try to build something to fill this hole. Could television be an alternative to universal pre-K for kids three to five? So what I want us to think about is not how do we fix Gilligan's Island or how we take it off the air, but how do we start building Sesame Street alongside it? And the good news on this is that our little group at Columbia, now going over to UMass, is not the only team working on the idea that we could build something really marvelous, even at this step of internet evolution. Once again, our friends at Wikimedia are way a hell of all, uh, way the hell ahead of all of us. But there's other teams out there that are trying things like decentralized networks based around blockchains, uh, planetary dot social. Some of them are trying to incent people for participation using tokens. Others are looking at re-architecting the internet on some very basic levels to give users much tighter control over data. Tim Berners-Lee and the Solid Project is working around this. Others are trying to create subscription services where they're supported by the community that actually invests in them. Wikimedia founder Jimmy Wales is doing something called WT Social, which is a news-focused subscription-based social network. Uh, some of my favorites are actually just working on getting governments and particularly public broadcasters and cultural institutions to use tools and systems that are more consistent with their values. There's an amazing project called Public Spaces coming out of the Netherlands, which is working along those lines. All these projects, to one extent or another, are united by the idea that another internet is possible and that we need an internet that is different from the one that has evolved at this particular moment. So I wanna start with a big idea and a big hypothesis, which is that the internet and the relationships that we have with each other on it is just too important to leave up to the market. It's not just about what becomes the most popular, what becomes the most successful. We actually need tools that are designed specifically to help us be better citizens and to be better neighbors. And some of these tools might actually be funded as public goods. And we might do this with a model like public broadcasting or NPR, where some users who really care about it are subsidizing others. But it could also mean that we start demanding investment in critical internet services using taxpayer funds. But this doesn't necessarily mean that we as the end users are paying taxes for this infrastructure. Paul Romer, who is a Nobel winning economist, has proposed a tax on surveillance advertising 
designed to discourage large platforms from relying on tracking their users as their primary revenue model. And I want to suggest that we could take this idea and go even a step further. We could use funds raised by attacks like this to invest in tools, to invest in platforms that start working to give us an internet that's healthier for civic life. You could even imagine using something like this to create a corporation for digital public infrastructure that's dedicated to helping us build the tools and the infrastructures that we don't yet have for healthy online civic spaces. So what would we do if we went about creating an internet expressly designed for improving civic life? Well, we built tools that are vastly more transparent than the ones that we have today. We'd want to be able to answer questions like, is this search engine trying to sway an election through search results, which is a real question that's actually incredibly hard to discover on today's internet. But we would also want to build tools that are really researching how users interact with one another online, how they can have the healthiest possible interactions. Shout out to our friends over at the University of Texas who are working on the Civic Signals project, really asking those hard, rigorous questions about what does it mean to be in healthy civic interactions. But in terms of what we build, I think we'd probably look at three spaces. I think we would look really hard at discovery systems, systems like Google, which frankly have enormous power over what we see and what we don't see. I think we would look really hard at revenue systems. I know that Catherine's going to talk a little bit about revenue, but right now the main ways to monetize content are through joining these vast surveillance advertising networks. People need better ways to make money off the things they build. And we need better ways to support the creators that we enjoy without supporting this sort of advertising system that tracks our movements. But maybe most critically, we need much better digital public spaces. We need to look at platforms that right now, we worry push misinformation to us, sends us into echo chambers, generates extremism. The work that we're doing at UMass focuses on these digital public spaces and on social media, both because the need is so acute and because the problems, believe it or not, might actually be more tractable than problems like search. So I want you to sort of keep in mind this big vision, this idea that we may be building infrastructures as public goods with taxpayer or voluntary support as alternatives and maybe eventually competitors with existing platforms. But I also want to share with you some small hypotheses about what we're building. Uh, and small is really a key word here. I have started to think that one of the biggest problems with internet communities is that they're too big to be communities. All of us are involved with communities in real life. It might be the neighbors that you see when you walk the dog. It might be churches. It might be a circle of friends. It might be people that you play board games with or people that you lean on in an online support group. Many of us are used to communities that range from a few dozen people to a few hundred people. Very few of us would identify as members of communities of hundreds of millions of people. But that's what Facebook claims. It claims that it's a community of three plus billion people. And frankly, there is no such thing. 
The great thing about small communities is that you can belong to lots of them. And they can all be really different. They've got different social norms. They have different rules about what's acceptable. And in real life, we are remarkably good at negotiating between those different spaces and the rules associated with them. So with the theory that small is beautiful, some of the work that we're starting at UMass is working with a branch of Mastodon. Mastodon is a very powerful open source social network. It's a lot like Twitter. It's actually designed to let you build your own distributed version of Twitter. You can run your own server with your own rules. You can decide whether you want to connect with another server. That's not how we're using it. We're actually using it to create tiny standalone social networks that give their users very powerful tools to manage conflicts. But we're designing these very specifically with people who've got use cases for them. We're working with a small newspaper publisher. Uh, I can't say who they are because they're still trying to figure out whether they want to sign a deal with us, but we have been learning a ton from them. This is a publisher out in the Mountain West. They mostly publish papers in cities with a population of 20,000 people or smaller. Um, they have this idea that well-run communities that are connected to the news, that are managed in part by the journalists and the editors could actually be a sales fe feature for the paper and that they might be a healthier conversation space than some of these existing networks like Nextdoor. So we are learning from their needs and sort of building a version of the software for them. A second group we're working with is the Massachusetts Moderators Association. This is a group of people who do the incredibly hard work of running town meetings. And we're talking about taking town meeting form of government, which is when the people in a small town get together for about three hours in a high school gymnasium and make decisions for the town for a year and thinking about whether a small well-controlled social network could actually lower the stress of that process and make it more participatory and more inclusive. And we're going to try experiments with them over the next year. No doubt these spaces require really significant moderation. But one of the hypotheses that we're trying is this idea that moderation is actually the greatest missed opportunity of social media. Platforms like Facebook tend to treat moderation as a cost center. They try to outsource it to algorithms. They try to hand it off to low paid workers in places like the Philippines. We can spend an enormous amount of time debating how platforms like Facebook can moderate fairly. Can an oversight board provide the guidance and structure that they need? Will Facebook end up with a Supreme Court? I wanna make the suggestion that Facebook's literally ungovernable and it's ungovernable because it's not a community. It's millions of communities bumping up against each other under a set of rules that don't work especially well for any of them. But the takeaway from that is not that online communities are ungovernable. It just means that we actually need to think about these communities in terms of governance, not in terms of moderation. We need to start building communities that take the work of governing themselves seriously. And we can learn from healthy communities like Wikimedia, like Reddit, that work with volunteer moderators to create healthy online spaces. We should be doing this not just because this is one of the few ways to create just and inclusive online spaces. It's also something that's good for us as citizens.
When Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone starts griping about the loss of the Elks Club and the local bowling league, most of us read that as being about losing loose ties and losing our social networks. But it's actually something else. We are losing these training spaces where we get to learn how to manage democratic processes on a small scale. Through online spaces, we can actually learn to govern and to debate and to work with people who disagree with us and to deal with these sorts of fights that we end up having. So we're working on a version of Mastodon that's gonna include tools to help communities govern themselves. This includes Policy Kit, which is a set of tools designed by Dr. Amy Zhang over at the University of Washington. We're hoping to include some tools that help communities experiment on themselves to create healthier dialogue. That's based on work that Dr. Nate Matias is doing over at Cornell. So imagine an open social network made for people who are gonna use existing social networks, single sign-on, powerful community management tools, tools for self-governance developed in conjunction with real world communities, it's still not enough to get me to give up my Twitter account. Um, and that's one of the key things in all of this. We don't want to depend on Facebook failing for us to succeed. Actually, what we're hoping for is a world in which if these small social networks gain traction, it's possible that existing social networks will sort of grow towards our direction. And while that sounds crazy, we've actually seen some evidence of that happening in the past with some experiments I did over at MIT. This is really different from how most new social networks work, which basically says we figured out that Facebook is evil, we're gonna separate from them as much as possible. We actually wanna make it possible for people to use dozens of different social networks, including these new small ones we're building. We're going to build this around the Gobo platform we started building at MIT. This is a tool designed to let users look at different social networks, control how she's seeing the posts. So rather than being governed by the Facebook feed, actually have control over what you're seeing from all these different social networks, including these new small civic ones. This will be complicated. Legally, this will be complicated. The platforms are very likely to block us from interacting with their networks, but it's building on a long technical tradition that Cory Doctorow talks about as adversarial interoperability, making your tools compatible with existing tools, whether or not those companies like it or not, because it's better for the consumers. And we're gonna take models from things like Jabber, which in the late 1990s, ended the instant messaging wars by bridging between AOL Instant Messenger and Yahoo Instant Messenger. No one wanted to figure out what network your friend was on. We just want to talk with people. So can we build around that sort of principle? So the big idea, the internet's too important to be left up to the market. These little ideas, small is beautiful. We want governance, not moderation. We wanna think about adversarial interoperability for compatibility. We don't need Facebook to fail to build something great. That's the context for who you're gonna hear from this week. We're gonna hear from people like Sarah Lomax-Reese and Michael Wood-Lewis who are running incredibly successful real world communities. In Sarah's case around community radio in Philadelphia, in Michael's case around a remarkable email list in Vermont. We're gonna listen to some people for whom existing platforms don't work 
well. Ezra Al-Shafei works with LGBTQ youth in the Middle East for whom existing social networks just aren't safe. You can literally get arrested for using them. We're going to hear from Eliza Sorensen, who works with Assembly 4 in Australia, building new tools for sex workers who've been forced off of U.S. social media by SESTA-FOSTA. We're going to dive really deep into this question of adversarial interoperability with Cory Doctorow, but we're going to get a great dose of reality from Daphne Keller, who's going to remind us just how hard it actually is to build protocols that bridge between all these different networks. We're going to look at what misinformation might look like in these smaller communities we're talking about with Francesca Tripodi, Barbara Pfister, who've done amazing work thinking about disinfo and how we combat it. On our last day, we're going to hear from scholars who are going to really try to broaden our view around this. Jonathan Ong, who does a remarkable job of looking at the problems of social media and governance from a Global South perspective with amazing research on what's going on in Southeast Asia. And then one of my very favorite people on the program, Evelyn Duick, who is, I think, the most thoughtful young policy researcher out there, who I've asked to really sort of take a critical eye at what we're doing throughout the week and give us a read on what's possible and what's less possible. But all of this should really explain why I am so thrilled to hand the stage over to my friend Catherine Marr, because I have such enormous admiration for her personally taking over a community that since inception has been making the point that there is more than one way to build the internet. And Catherine has just done a magnificent, magnificent job uh, under her curatorship of helping the web as a whole learn from Wikimedia. So I'm really excited as soon as I can figure out how to stop sharing my slides to hand this over to her. So thank you. Reimagining the Internet is hosted by me, Ethan Zuckerman, and produced by Mike Sugarman, who also composed this music. Follow us at publicinfrastructure.org to learn more about what we're up to at the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure, and please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it.